Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. I want you to turn to your Bibles and uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And uh, this morning, I do want to consider from verse 8 through to verse 11, but uh, I'm going to read from verse 3. I think it's important that we see something of the unity of uh, the passage, and of course, even the entire book, but this particular section as well. So follow with me then. Uh, Paul writing, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. Verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Just so far, let's pray once again. Lord, as Brad has prayed that you would teach us your statutes, Lord, teach us this morning a way of life that would indeed lead to dependence on you more and more. And again, we affirm, we repeat, Lord, that apart from your Spirit working in our hearts through your Word, Lord, all is in vain. And so may your Holy Spirit, your precious Spirit, be at work in each one of us, both, Lord, hearer and preacher alike, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a passage this morning where Paul goes on to tell of a severe affliction that he experienced uh, in ministry while in Asia. But as we look at this passage, it's important to go back right to the beginning, right to the start of his conversion to Christ. Again, the importance of not just looking at the immediate, but what is it that we can see and learn from the greater context. Right at the beginning when... uh, Paul was converted. I think it's a well-known story on the road to Damascus. God had commanded Ananias to give Paul a message. 
And I want us to consider this message. It's found in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. So this is what God says to Ananias. Go, for he, that is Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I don't know about you, but when I read that, there is something strange. There's a surprising strangeness and unexpected strangeness in this message from Ananias about Paul from God. Now, what is the strangeness that, that I see? See, on the one hand, uh, God tells him that he's a chosen instrument. He's been singled out by God, brought to God in salvation, set apart for a ministry. He's experienced, he's a recipient of God's redeeming love. He's appointed by God for this task. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, God says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Being chosen by God, God chose him, he didn't choose God. And suffering at the hand of God seem at odds with each other. Uh, and if you agree, one would think rationally that, that if God set his love upon somebody so specifically and deliberately, there would be an ease of life. But, but that's not what we see. It's not, it's not what we read. Uh, how can we or anyone else reconcile what I want to call this morning these two unlikely bedfellows? Well, first we need to talk about the experience of hardship. And my first point this morning, experiencing the pain of affliction. I read the context this morning because with praise to God, we Paul it started in verse 3, as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and then all the ramifications and, uh, of comfort that will still be ringing in the ears of the, the, the hearers, Paul now relates an example, a personal example of hardship. And, and he wants to help them make better sense of these two unlikely bedfellows. And so he says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, what was it? It's hard to find out. We don't know. We can speculate. Some commentators argue that this refers to the incident in Ephesus uh, where there was an, uh, an outcry, in fact a riot, uh, when Demetrius, who was the silversmith, was losing business because of gospel ministry. And, 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 and so there was this attack on, 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 uh, the, on, on Paul and those who were delivering uh, the gospel message. Other scholars believe, well, it could have been something that simply wasn't recorded. Some even, I discovered as I researched this, that uh, believe that it was an incident where Paul fought hand-to-hand uh, -hand with wild beasts in Ephesus. Now, I don't know, and I don't think it's actually important that we know the specific incident. However, the trial was severe. It was terrible. So much so that Paul and his companions, he writes in this passage, 
were led to despair even of life itself. They felt they were done. They felt that they had received the sentence of death. The intensity. I think we must feel that in this message this morning. The intensity of their suffering made them think that their lives might well be lost through it. So I try to think, how do we express that today? Some of the uh, expressions I've used, I've used other people, I've heard other people uh, say these things. I feel I'm at the end of my tether. Have you been there? Some of us have been there. Those moments of feeling hopeless and helpless. Perhaps younger people speak about having their backs pinned to the wall. Uh, can't move. You, unable to do anything or, or, or a sense of being crushed, uh, be, feeling an unbearable weight. Well, the truth of the matter is not only the incident in Asia, but the Apostle Paul and many of God's servants, I would almost want to say this morning, most if not all of God's servants down through the ages have suffered hardship. Some kind at some time or another. Later on in Second Corinthians, we're actually going to get to see a glimpse uh, of the suffering that Paul went through in the course of his ministry. And I've, it's, it's from chapter 11 and from verse 23. I'm just going to mention the actual uh, events or incidents that he refers to. And you kind of think, well, this guy definitely knew something of the intensity and severity of hardship. He speaks of imprisonments, countless beatings, uh, the 40 lashes less one. In other words, actually uh, physically abused. Beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. And then he has a section where he refers to all sorts of dangers. Danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from our own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Do you get the idea? There, there is a, a wide variety of, of hardship, of suffering, of difficulty. And in fact, he carries on. Many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. Now, not only Paul, but, but others have faced affliction of some sort or another, including some of you. We too, in our own day and age, feel and experience and encounter hardship. Now, it could be, and it's hard for me to know your own lives, but it could be that in your context at school or university or work, subtle persecution simply because of your Christian testimony or because you happen to share some kind of gospel message in that context. And people turn on you. People are harsh towards you. Your particular hardship might be... Uh, a form of unrelenting temptation where, where, where you, you suffer with a particular affliction, maybe of greed, maybe of, of lust. It, it might be that you're a person who faces the hardship of doubt. Living in a world where there's so much cynicism and, and skepticism 
and, and so many other messages and, and in your mind and in your heart you struggle sometimes day in and day out wondering if you're ending up in unbelief. Now some of this comes as a result of the destructive work of Satan. Now we must remember that. Jesus warned Peter in Luke chapter 22 verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold... Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan continues to do that, not just to Peter, but to believers, to men and to women, young people. And so affliction is real. That's the point I'm trying to make here. It's it's real for all of us in some manner, in some degree. It can be the result of other reasons too, not just Satan. I also believe that this kind of affliction can be physical, some kind of physical hardship. It can be some kind of emotional ordeal. It can be spiritual, sometimes even that deep sense of spiritual darkness. And in fact, in my course of ministry, I've seen it can be all three, physical, emotional, and spiritual. And so it's not unusual for believers, that's the point I'm trying to make here, any one of us who are believers to be subjected to affliction of one sort or another. Now, in fact, I want to add, it can be and often is related to ministry activity. You're a faithful servant of the Lord, and you unashamedly stand for the gospel of Christ. You will find hardship. You will find opposition. But I also want to add, it might be simply hardship in the normal course of life. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have difficulties. And there is illness. There are instances of relational brokenness. Husbands and wives and the shattering of of a family and and divorce or, or children turning their backs on their parents or Parents turning their backs on their children. There is loss. There is death and, 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 and grieving and there's mourning. And so you, you must ask the question, how do you make sense of this as a believer? Go back to the strange bedfellows. Chosen by God. And affliction. How do you bring those two together? How do you reconcile this? Well, looking at our passage, Paul reveals something about this, trying to make sense of this hardship. Leads me to my second point, and I've called it exposing one of life's greatest lessons. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Brings me to my next point. Self-confidence. Self-confidence is a constant danger. I want to explore that a little. Isn't it true? We people are prone to think more highly of ourselves, more highly of our abilities than we ought. Is that true of you? Maybe putting that a little bit differently. Pride, it's ever ready to delude us 
by promoting us to a level of ability beyond our competence. I think it's called the Peter Principle in business. I can't remember, but I, that's somewhere in the back of my mind. But, but that's what pride does. It, it elevates our thinking, our approach and attitude to think, man, I can do this. I can handle this. I've got this. The experience of affliction and us coming to the end of our tether is that we learn not to trust ourselves. I want to quote John Calvin here. I think he puts it so well. He says, as this malady of self-reliance, the self-confidence, is so deeply rooted in the minds of men and women that even the most advanced, now he's speaking about even those who are mature in the faith, even those who are most advanced are not, not thoroughly purged from it. In other words, we suffer with this throughout the course of our lives as Christians until God sets death before their eyes. In other words, it's a lifelong problem. You must be aware of it. And so God has a great purpose for us, his people. It is to destroy in us confidence in the flesh. It is to bring us to the place where self-confidence passes into history. I want to add something in the light of last week's message that I think is also true. I believe it's true. Effectiveness in ministry, now I'm talking here about long-term eternal fruit in ministry. Effectiveness in ministry is very much related to where you place your confidence to who, at least, to who you rely on. Now I want to quote an old author. I found this old book on my shelf. It belonged to my father-in-law who was a pastor uh, by Alan Redpath. And uh, I want to quote him because I can't say it any better. But he says this, if you would bring blessing to one heart in trouble, which I'm sure you want to do, you want to bring blessings to others, one thing is going to stand in the way and make it absolutely impossible. No matter how you may or may not have entered physically into the suffering of another, no matter how much you may be able to share something through your own experience of that very thing through which that person has passed, even though you have done all this, yet in your life there is still confidence in the flesh, then your ministry is lost. Maybe I should repeat that statement. When there's still confidence in the flesh, your ministry is lost. And I'm preaching to myself this morning. Because coming up into the pulpit, what is it? Who is it? that actually does the work of ministry that lasts into eternity. Surely it is God and God alone. It, it's not the individual. We come and we go. We come and we go. In fact, uh, Alan Redpath goes on. He says, for this ministry is a ministry of the Holy Spirit alone. And he cannot. I'll change that a little bit. He does not work where there is self-confidence. And so there is a challenge as we navigate our lives. Placing yourself on a pedestal because of spiritual gifts that God has given you. Or talents that you may have or intellect that 
uh, you have, or eloquence, or personality, or spiritual disciplines, all of these can be an enemy to usefulness in ministry. The price, there's a cost. The price of bringing blessing to another needy person is to eradicate self-confidence. Get rid of it. Eliminate it. And I'm, I don't like this myself either, but it's true. One of the God-designed means of addressing self-confidence is affliction. Sardship. The point being that affliction pins your back to the wall. Affliction leaves you feeling crushed. It does the work of dismantling self-confidence. Because in that context, you begin to see, and I begin to see, I'm not a self-sufficient creature. But that's only half the picture. I said there's a lesson, but there are two sides to this lesson. See, when you have your back to the wall, you've resorted to and you've exhausted all your abilities and your options. It forces you to look outside of yourself. That's the very next verse. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. And so the next point, the next half of the lesson, relying on God must be the outcome of affliction, of the hardship, of the difficulty. You see, in this context, of any kind of suffering, we, we are reminded that and realize we're relying on ourselves is pointless. We need to rely more fully on God. When like Paul, you feel like you've received the sentence of death. Now, yes, yes, I think an important realization that we should know, that we should uh, keep in our minds, it it brings about a consciousness of the fact of your own mortality. That you're finite. That you're a human being. Uh, so when I was a lot younger, I remember someone saying to me once, you know when you're sick and you have to go to bed and perhaps you're in hospital and you're lying flat on your back? I remember this person saying to me, you know what that does? It forces you to look upwards. And that's, that's so. You, you have no option. You, you have to look upwards. Now, do you want to look at the ceiling or do you want to look at God? And, and the point of the passage is, look at God. You understand your frailty, your mortality. Understand that we people are finite, that we have limitations. We are dust. So on the one hand, this consciousness of our human frailty or to lead us to see that we are dependent creatures. Wonderfully made in the image of God, but we are dependent creatures. But on the other hand, it should help us and prompt us and lead us as believers to have a clearer vision of God. In the context of our passage, yes, that is powerful. But we've already seen last week that this God is the Father of mercies and the God of comfort. While we are dependent creatures, He is the all-sufficient one, able and involved in acts of grace 
and kindness. Now he's saying, hang on, but, but where do we see that? How do we see that? Well, Paul goes on. He says, in, this, in fact, in this verse, Paul adds a description of the greatest act of grace and kindness for the worst kind of calamity. What, what is the worst thing that can happen to anybody? Well, the worst that can happen is you can die. And you will die. You'll die. The point Paul makes is God is more than able to address that catastrophe. Verse 9 again. Indeed, we, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, not full stop, but on God who raises the dead. Now just think back again to the disciples at the crucifixion. Absolutely in despair as they watched Jesus being crucified, taken from the cross, laid in the tomb, and, and all that they had anticipated and hoped for, suddenly these dreams and these hopes are shattered. They're destroyed. But three days later, three days later, their outlook changed. Jesus was raised from the dead. And the two truths, at least two truths, immediately must have sunk into their minds. Number one, the power of God in giving life to a dead body. They would have been aware of the Old Testament. Remember Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, and, and the bones uh, in, 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 uh, being given flesh and, and the breath of life. That's the kind of power and ability and the thing that God does and can do. And secondly, secondly, the reminder that Jesus is the resurrection and the life impacting the lives of the believer personal, practical application. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Jesus, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he emphasizes this act of kindness and grace in verse 10. Just look again at the verse and the repetition. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us us again. And, and so what are we seeing here? The repetition of deliver. The first being past tense. His own experience of being delivered on the road to Damascus in the broader scheme of being saved, but also delivered from the deadly peril in Asia. The next thing being the near future, he will deliver us because guaranteed around the corner there's another bump in the road. But in the bigger scheme of things, when all else and everything fails and death occurs, there's the ultimate future. He will deliver us again. God indeed can be trusted. The point being that God has displayed resurrection power. This God can be trusted in all circumstances of hardship, even, even in what we consider the worst crisis being that of death. I mean, I've often wondered about Stephen. I quote him often in the church. Because he, in, in Acts chapter 7, we read of him being stoned to death. But there is something about Stephen's attitude and approach that enables him to be carried through that experience with hope. Why was that? Knowing that he could rely on God who raises the dead. We see the same thing, the Apostle Paul writing to young Timothy, 
uh, later on in 2 Timothy 4 verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed along the way in the course of my life and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom, final deliverance. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, Paul then adds a final word of this passage now to the Corinthians on this matter of, of where you place, is it placing your eggs in which basket do you place your eggs? And he goes on to show that reliance on God does not leave you and me passive. Have a look at verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on your behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, what's he saying here? It's great to know the theological truth of God that is a God of, of, of a Father of mercies, the God of comfort, that he raises the dead. That, that's wonderful. It's, it's an excellent and, and encouraging truth. However, for the believer, Paul is saying here, your and my self-confidence is exposed if there's lack of prayer. Are we really trusting God? Whereas if we understand our mortality and our frailty and our dependence, this acknowledged inadequacy is then expressed through prayer. Now we rely on God. Now again, I want to quote another author because he tries to to, to uh, bring together this mystery of prayer. God at work, us at work, God being uh, at work, us being used. He says, prayer is indeed a mystery. It's true that it is God who delivers and that God stands, and this is important that we understand this, that God stands in no need of human prayers before he can act on behalf of his afflicted servants. Yet, there is a manward as well as a Godward aspect of such deliverance in prayer for the fellow believers who are enduring affliction. And then he, he puts it in a sentence that I think summarizes. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of the divine omnipotence. The weakling places himself or herself on the strong one. Thus, the duty of prayer is not a modification of God's power, but a glorification of it. God gets the glory. God gets the thanks. As many are helped by the prayers of the saints. Well, let me conclude. I'll try and reconcile these two difficult issues. So being chosen by God as a special instrument and suffering at the hand of God in the light of what Paul has said, are actually not at odds with each other. We should now see more clearly why Paul begins this letter with praise to God. Folk, we cannot avoid or minimize the reality of hardship. Cannot do that. Burdens and dangers and difficulties that Paul went through, to some degree, at some time, will come to you and come to me. However, nevertheless, we can learn to praise God, the Father of mercies, the God of comfort, in them because of the good God-wrought fruit that they will produce. There's, there's purpose. That's the point of this message. We don't suffer for nothing. 
The affliction is not just some kind of whimsical, incidental thing. There is, there is purpose, a God-intended purpose. Our difficulties are God-given opportunities to show us, to teach us, to reveal to us the compassion of God, the comfort of God, the power of God, the deliverance of God. His willingness to listen to the prayers of His people. That, that's what we learn in the midst of difficulties. And, and, and a couple of questions in, in, in closing here. Would our experience of God's character be so much poorer if we didn't know trouble? Now, for me, I can say that's true. I've learned most about God in the difficulties of life. Really learn. Not textbook learning, life learning. Second question. What about testimonies? Would there be any testimonies? And, and there are many of you here this morning, I know, who have lived through extremely difficult times, who are still going through difficult times, who can say, but God... God gets the glory. God get, gets the thanks. So, so would there be any testimonies if, if life was just plain sailing? I don't think so. Would there be substantial reasons accumulating day by day that we could ascribe to Him? Today, today I experience the hand of God carrying me, helping me, understanding underneath of the everlasting arms. You see, Frank, when we respond to our hardships in the right way, we are led more meaningfully in worship and hope, not relying on ourselves. Knowing better, knowing better that God is God, is infinite and sovereign and all-sufficient, and that we are mortal, that we are, uh, in, that we are finite, that we are dust, and that we are dependent. And so I want to encourage you this morning, encourage you, seeing God has acted, does act in kindness and grace. God who raises the dead, he will help you. So I close with a personal testimony that perhaps I shouldn't do. On Friday morning, I was sitting here in this church. I did not participate in the memorial service. Um, Isaac was able to help the family in Portuguese, and uh, Eric uh, Robbins led the service. And at the end of the service, they played a song uh, on YouTube to conclude the service. And it was a song that Carol repeatedly play played after she discovered her illness. No more scars in heaven. I broke down crying. And when I walked out here, people must have thought, what is this bloke? How did he know this lady? <laughs> no. But in those moments, and just chatting afterwards, Deanna was so kind to me afterwards, I realized again my own weakness, dependence, and frailty. But God raises the dead. Indeed, Lord, we pray that you would write on our hearts and minds the truth of the hope that we have in you.
Please, Lord, help us in the midst of our hardships and difficulties and grow us in our understanding of who you are. Keep us, Lord, from superficial uh, understandings, uh, trite words that we sometimes just say that are so superficial and meaningless. Lead us in a deep and meaningful relationship and love for you, we pray. Trusting you, obeying you, as we've as we sang earlier on. And Lord, I do pray for those who are particularly hurting this morning. Thank you for the reminder this morning that you hear the prayers that we bring for each other. And so, Lord, we commend each other to you. And even this morning, Lord, remembering those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Draw close to them, we pray. Others, Lord, with difficulties, perhaps in the home, in the marriage, perhaps financially. Lord, perhaps just the struggle with a real dark season of spiritual, even depression. Won't you grant them deliverance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.